Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. How you doing? Here's what I want you to do. I want you, um, because because lamenting, just via the name, is a heavy topic. So I want you just to take a moment and greet your neighbor. Go ahead. You can you can stand up and greet them. You can sit down and greet them. You can twirl and greet them. I don't care how you greet them. Just say hi to each other, real quick, like. Anybody here um, grow up in church and you remember the little song that they used to sing? Um, shake your neighbor's hand, shake a hand next to you. Shake a neighbor's hand as you sing. Yes, there's someone else who grew up in the same cult that I did. Um, it just got weird. In youth group, we loved it because it went from shake your neighbor's hand to hug a neighbor's neck to scratch your neighbor's back, and then it just got weird from there. I was thinking in the future, for all the introverts in the room, we could just sing. I'm just kidding. We are never, will we ever uh, do that. I shouldn't say that because then it might happen. Um, also, yes, I do like candy corn. I, the announcements got weird there for a minute. They were talking about maybe Asians don't like candy corn, and I was like, what is happening out there? And we're live. Um, so... Wow. I almost just came out and took over at that point. Um, <laughs> uh, also, I just want to acknowledge, uh, first of all, I want to say thank you to Pastor Jonas Mackey for stepping in and preaching for me two weeks ago. Um, did a great job last minute. I just sent him notes. I was like, if you just say, no, those were his own notes. Um, but I am not lost on the fact uh, that he tried to poke at me um, a, a little bit. While I was down, nonetheless, um, but I'm just not the kind of guy who's going to retaliate um, or, or get back at anyone for something like that. I fully recognize that if you choose to work hard in this world, you risk injury, which is why he's been injury-free for most of his life. Um, uh, but I'm not going to, like, it's fine. It's just a, there are two kinds of people in the world. There are people who hunt and succeed, and then there are people who just make fun of people who hunt and succeed. Um, so I'm just going to leave it alone. I'm not going to say anything else about it. No, I'm really grateful, um, and, and this is no exaggeration. Literally Saturday, um, I injure myself, not by sneezing, to be clear, although that could happen, I'm certain, um, but yanking on a moose quarter, and uh, I called I texted three guys on our team. I said, whoever wants it, batter up, because I'm going to be flat on my back tomorrow. And, uh, and Pete didn't respond. He acted like he didn't get the text message. <laughs> Paul went and asked Emily if it was okay. And, and then Jonas was like, I'll do it. And um, I really am grateful. I'm grateful that we have a team that can step in like that and is willing to as well. So we're in um, this series in the Psalms, or Songs That Matter, and there are a couple of things that you need to, to know, but the idea of music or singing or making melody 
is a massive theme in the scriptures. In fact, over 350 times singing is mentioned in the scriptures. In fact, when you look at eternity, much of what we will be doing in eternity is singing songs of celebration, adoration, whatever all of eternity looks like, melody is part of it. It's actually a big deal in the scriptures. Now, um, you may not know this, but um, there are roughly um, 2.2 billion Christians in the world, which is more than a third of the population of the world, 2.2 billion Christians as of roughly about 10 years ago and growing. And that's a lot of people. Now, I just want to narrow the focus down to one particular group in that group of Christians, which um, they would categorize as uh, Pentecostal, charismatic, evangelical Christians. And in that group, there's roughly um, 869, or 69 million of them which is a lot of Pentecostals running around. Um, it's, it's why the world's as crazy as the world is. But the Pentecostal charismatic evangelical, roughly 869 million of them, which is over a third of the total population of Christians in the world. And I, the reason I single that group out is because I happen to know a lot about that group because that's the group I grew up in. Um, and that group um, loves to sing. And so let's just say on average, they sing three worship songs a week for 52 weeks of the year. And trust me, if you're Pentecostal or charismatic, that is the lowest you can go. You cannot sing less than three songs of worship, and most of them need to last at least 10 minutes. Um, uh, so, so let's just take that group, 52 weeks in the year, three songs a Sunday. What you're actually looking at is around 135 billion worship songs sung every year. That's a lot of singing. Isn't it? Like, like, and we love singing songs of celebration. Now, from the birth of the church, from the days of the church in Acts till now, a little over 2,000 years of church history, some, since that period of time, they estimate there's somewhere around um, 600,000 to 1 million hymns and songs written in the church written from scripture, written from people's experience with Christ. But there have been a lot of songs written over that period of time. Now, over the past several years, um, past several decades, they've been keeping track of what they call the top 25 worship songs in America. So it's the songs that are sung the most in churches. And every year, they populate that list with 25 songs. And so from um, uh, 2010 to 2020, you have about 250 opportunities to make that list. 25 songs every year, times 10, you get it. It's not a math class, and I'm no good at math, but I know that's 250. If it's not, please tell me much later. Um, but 250 opportunities to make that list. Now, over a decade, over a 10-year period, they discovered that only 38 songs populated that list. So they would get repeated, right? They were the most popular song again next year. So shout to the Lord. All That was popular for like, all of my life, it feels like. Um, uh, now you don't even know it. Um, I'm sure one of them was, shake your neighbor's hand, shake a hand next to you. <laughs> but so out of 250 opportunities to get on the top 25 list, 38 songs populated that list. And out of those 38 songs, 35 of them were written by four churches. You can probably guess who they are, right? 
Hillsong, Elevation, Bethel, Passion Church, and Passion Movement. And as I'm reading some of these numbers and these worship leader websites and whatnot, they sort of, um, they're promoting this idea as though that were a bad thing. It should be much more diverse than that. But here's what's interesting. When you look at the Psalms in the scriptures, it's fair to say um, that the Psalms were written over about an 820-year period. But only two of the Psalms, the one written by Moses and the one they believe is written by Ezra to launch, Psalm 1, to launch the book of Psalms, where Ezra compiles all the songs of Israel into a songbook or five songbooks, all but two, 148 of the Psalms were written within a 63-year period, and all of them within the household of David. So there's about four or five authors who author the Psalms, but the overwhelming majority, all but two, are written within a 63-year period. It's within reason that there are particular times in the history and movement of God in the world where he is pouring out music through a select group of people. And that's what happens for Israel. In fact, these songs will endure for a thousand years and more in the hearts and mind of Israel. And here's what I want you to know. Over a third of those psalms are what are known as psalms of lament, psalms of grieving, psalms of loss. You can identify them when you're reading through the psalms because they typically begin with something like, oh God, oh Lord, right? That's, that's how they begin, but it's a prom, it is the most prominent theme of all the genres of psalms are psalms of lament. And there's a reason for that. It makes sense when you think about life. Pain is inevitable. Loss is inevitable. My uh, brother-in-law is in town right now. He and his family, uh, Kitri's brother, and we were just sitting talking last night. I mean, there's 11 kids in my wife's family. Yeah, they were homeschoolers, but still, there's 11, <laughs> just kidding, we home, okay, anyways, uh, 11 kids, and when you look at the family and the things that we have not experienced when it comes to loss, God has been really gracious, but it is coming. I'm in that season of life now, I'm not old, I'm just older, but I'm in that season of life where I could get a phone call at any moment. It's an expectation. And the Psalms of Lament are written for a really specific reason. They're written for the purpose of helping us discover what does it look like to grieve well. I uh, was thinking of a song here recently. Um, it's from 1984. I was alive then, for those of you who are wondering. Um, 1984, and it wasn't that long ago. Uh, I was a little bit disappointed to discover that it was actually written by Elton John and not Billy Joel, but anyways. Um, uh, sad songs. Anybody remember this? Like, so turn them on, turn them on, turn on those sad songs. When all hope is gone, you just tune in and turn them on. Anybody? Nobody? Wow. Okay. I got two thumbs up. I'm going to carry on then. That's more than I usually get. Um, 
Could be the tune was wrong. I don't know. But the idea is that um, in those moments when you're experiencing loss, pain, grief, there are songs that connect with you at a deep emotional level, and you actually need someone to help you express what's going on internally. There's a I've had those moments where um, betrayal at the hands of a friend or deep suffering that I've experienced as I've walked through things with others, and a song will come on, I'll just find myself sitting at a stoplight, and I can't stop the tears. You know what I'm talking about? Like, and someone else is helping me express what's going on internally, because sadness is universal, grief is inevitable, but lamenting is actually different than either of those things. We've had a lot of conversation as of late about how to grieve well culturally, but sadness and grief are actually just emotions, and it's possible to be sad and do nothing about it. It's possible to be in grief and just stay in grief. In fact, we have a propensity to get stuck in those places. Sadness and grief are feelings, but lamenting is a response. In fact, it's a biblical response to loss, pain, suffering, sadness, and grief. Which brings me to professional party poopers. The definition of a lament is this. A lament um, is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. And we're not very good at it. There's a couple of reasons that we tend to not be very good at it. And it's, it's actually because sadness or grief seems like a weak or embarrassing emotion which isn't new to our culture or our day. It isn't a Western idea or a macho idea. If you were to look back culturally, you ever notice when, when a woman starts to cry, I think men do this too, I just, it's so rare that I see men cry. Um, but, but women, when they start to cry, they say, um, I'm sorry. As though there was something to apologize for because emotion is being expressed. Uh, but often we look at it as weakness or embarrassing. Now, you've probably seen pictures or seen videos before of what they call professional mourners. And in ancient cultures, including Egypt, in Egyptian culture, in Greek culture, in Roman culture, and even in Hebrew culture, you would hire people to come to the funeral and wail for you, which seems super weird to us. Like, I have not performed a funeral yet where the professionals showed up with badges, like, no, we're not with the press, we're professional whalers, which is the perfect term for it because they just, ah, like grieving. You can, you can still watch it in Middle Eastern cultures to this day, you see these people wailing. They are professional mourners. And there were a couple of reasons for this, and one of them was in Egyptian culture, in Roman culture, in Greek culture, and in Hebrew culture, it was considered unacceptable for men to cry in public. 
So when you read in the scriptures in Amos chapter 5, verse 16, or Jeremiah 9, 17, here's what it says. There will be crying in all the public squares and mourning in every street. Call for the farmers to weep with you and summon professional mourners to wail. Because sometimes you just need someone who can express the emotion that you don't know how to get out. It's bottled up inside of here. And that's part of what David and others are doing in the Psalms as they're writing Psalms of lament for us. It's also interesting to note that culturally it was unacceptable for men to cry, but it's one of the reasons that it is so profound in John eleven thirty five 35, when Jesus shows up at the tomb of Lazarus, the shortest verse in the Bible, and it simply states, Jesus wept. Like, he knew what was about to happen. He knew what he was going to ask the Father for Lazarus to be raised from the dead. But in that moment, he had zero reservation about expressing his internal emotion at the loss of a friend and at the grief everyone else was experiencing. He didn't buy into the cultural norms that it is unacceptable for men to express emotion. Now, weeping is a way that we express grief, and expressing it is important but it's also insufficient. You can just get stuck there. Grieving is part of lamenting, but it is not the purpose of lamenting. Lamenting has a purpose and a pathway to it. Purpose and pathways. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, listen to what it says. And now... Dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to all the believers who have died. We want you to understand that there is a resurrection from the dead, so you will not grieve. It'd be interesting if that verse just stopped there, wouldn't it? We want you to know what's going to happen after this life so that you won't grieve. But that's not what it says. So that you won't grieve like people who have no hope. He doesn't say, I don't want you to grieve because you know they're going to be resurrected from the dead. Grief is important. It's appropriate. It's necessary. There is a loss. There is suffering. There is hurt. There is pain. But I don't want you to grieve like people who have no hope, which is an interesting way to describe it because the biblical purpose of lamenting is to bring us from a place of despair to a place of hope to a place of trust. The biblical purpose of a lament, of letting it all out, of saying it exactly like it is, of describing to God how you feel, the biblical purpose of a lament is actually to lead you to someplace, and that place is a place of trust and hope. And we often stop far short of that when we grieve. He doesn't say don't grieve. It's necessary that you grieve, but don't grieve like people who have no hope because your situation is not hopeless no matter how hard it is. Pastor Mark Vergop, a Dutch pastor, and it's a good Dutch name. Here's what he has to say about lament. Lament is more than just the expression of sorrow or the venting of emotion. Lament talks to God about pain, and it has a unique purpose, trust. 
It is a divinely given invitation to pour out our fears, frustrations, and sorrows for the purpose of helping us renew our confidence in God. Lament turns toward God when sorrow tempts you to run from him. The practice of lament is one of the most theologically informed things a person can do. Lament invites you to turn towards God. The God's not afraid of your concerns. He's not afraid of your fears. He's not afraid of your anger. He's not afraid of your sadness. Turn towards him when everything about pain and loss and grief is tempting you to turn away from him. God is saying, bring it to me. I can handle it. I'm always wearing my big boy pants. You can tell me exactly how you feel. And in the Psalms, there are two types of lament. They're broken into categories, um, personal lament and communal or corporate lament. There are things we experience together, and we lament those things. We're grieving over those things. And then there are very personal things that every one of us has experienced and will experience. And both of those, an invitation, a divine invitation is extended to bring them to God. And there are four basic elements in the scriptures of a lament. Psalm 13 is a classic example of this. Psalm 13 is a short psalm, which I'm sure you're happy about since I'm opening up to it. Here's how it begins. O Lord, O Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with, in, with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Turn and answer me, O Lord my God. I love that they put an exclamation mark. Let me read that again. Turn and answer me, O Lord my God. Is that a little better? Restore the sparkle to my eyes or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat saying we have defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. But I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. Here's the four elements of a lament. You'll see it over and over again. They're not always necessarily in the exact same order, or it happens and it happens again as you're reading through a psalm of lament, but the four basic elements of a lament are this. Address, express, request, profess. First one, address. Draw your heart toward God. It's how every psalm of lament begins. In fact, it's one of the things that we often miss. We enter into grief or we enter into sadness without any direction for it. And God is saying, I want you to bring it to me. Listen, I know husbands aren't great at this, and so maybe you think that's what God's like. Dads aren't great at this, so maybe you think that's what God's like. They're not very good at handling emotion, right? Someone starts to cry, and we're like, I don't even know what to do right now. And the reality is that God is not like that. He's not remotely afraid. He's not confused. He's not at a loss. He is extending a divine invitation to bring it to him. 
And when we have no place to direct our complaint, our grief, our anger, when we have no place to direct it, it is aimless. And God is saying, aim it to me. Point it to me. Let me, I'm going to let you know a secret. He already knows. Like, oh, I don't want to offend him. He already knows what just ran through your head 10 seconds ago, right? He knows what's running through your head right now. He's not shocked or surprised by any of it. He's saying, say it out loud. I want you to know that I already know, and I'm inviting you to bring it to me. And you'll see it in every psalm of lament. It starts with, God. I was uh, out moose hunting, successfully moose hunting, I might add. Um, Levi was there with me. Um, he actually saw the moose. I got to shoot it. Uh, it wasn't big enough for him. But anyways, um, and, and, we're, and we're on our way back, and uh, my wheeler somehow, well, I know how, but it got a rock inside the rim, and when it came around and hit the arm on the wheeler, it punched it through the rim. My tire is fine. It punched it through the metal, which I don't know if you know this, but gum won't fix that. Um, and, and so I'm out there in the woods. They all abandoned me. I was like, oh, Lord, everyone has abandoned me. They drove the six billion miles out and then had to stay overnight, eat fresh pizza that they sent me pictures of, and sleep in a real bed, and then return the next day. But I was out in the woods all by myself, and, and I was just, and I had this, I just had a lot of time. Uh, and, and I just, I was spending some time in prayer, and I found myself over and over again like, Lord, because I know. I know there's nothing that I've felt, I've thought, that he is afraid of or unaware of. And he's inviting me to bring it to him. He can handle it. It's an invitation from God to address him. The second thing is express. You see David over and over and others take their complaint to God, but they also express exactly how they're feeling. They just say it the way it is, and the way it feels. Listen, I don't know if you have a friend like this. I've only had a handful of friends like this in my lifetime, but I need people in my life that I can say it wrong and it's all right. I know that they're not sitting there trying to pick apart every single statement I make and figure out why it's wrong or, oh, whoa, wait till I tell so-and-so you really feel that way about them. Right? I, just need, I need people in my life that I can say it wrong and it's all right. And I know I can, God is that person to the nth degree. In fact, he already knows all of it, and he invites you to address him and then express how you and I actually feel. And the third one is this, request. Direct your request toward, don't just express how you feel. He's saying, ask, tell me what you want, what you really, really. <laughs> he did not write that song, just to be clear. Uh, uh, like, He's saying, don't, I'm not just asking you right, to address me or express how you feel. I'm, I'm inviting you to ask something of me. This is one of, I think, the biggest challenges in um, what's often referred to as the sovereignty of God movement, that God is going to do whatever God wants to do, which is different than how I understand the sovereignty of God. God can do whatever God wants to do, but he often will do what you ask him to. He can do whatever. No one could stop his hand or say to him, what are you doing? But he actually extends an invitation to you and I to make your request known before the Lord. And trust me, you know this already. He may not always answer in the way that we would like him to 
or in the timing that we would like him to. In fact, it seems that he rarely does often, but he is inviting you to make your request of him because he actually is the one who can do something about it. I think often we slip into this fatalist mentality. Well, I guess this is my lot in life. If this is what you want for me, God. I've experienced in places like India before where you have the caste system, you have people who are low caste, people who are diseased, people who are not from wealthy families. And often in Hindu culture, the idea that you're going to come back in the next life as something better if you endure your suffering in this life well. And I can just tell you, as a matter of fact, I've watched it over and over on numerous occasions, having spent time in that culture. In Hindu culture, you are excused from helping anyone because they need to experience the full extent of their suffering so that they can experience the purification coming back in the next life. That is not a Christian idea. And God says, I'm inviting you to ask of me. He is moved with compassion when he sees the needs of his people. Ask. Make your request known to the Lord. You address God. You express how you really feel, and then you make your request of him. And here's the last piece, and this is a piece that we rarely get to. In fact, I would say most of us have probably gotten to point three at some point or another in our process of grieving and those sorts of things. But here's the last piece, and this is the critical element that distinguishes lamenting from simply getting stuck in cycles of grief. And it's this, profess. In other words, declare your trust in God. You think about Job, or you're hard-pressed to think of someone who has suffered more than what is described in Job's narrative. The losses and the betrayals and all the things that have come upon Job in a relatively short period of time and compared to everything that Job experienced at the hand of God prior to all of his suffering. And then Job makes this statement in the middle of the book as he's expressing his heart to God. He's telling God exactly how he feels. He's giving God a piece of his mind and God's not at all afraid of it. And then Job says this, yet though he slay me, even if he brought this physical life to an end, I trust him. Job understood something fundamental about the character and nature of God and the nature of humanity. You were made for more than this moment. This life, make it 70 years if you want of suffering, is a blink and a breath of what you were actually created for. And our ability to get to this place where we can recognize, God, here's what I'm asking of you. Here's exactly how I feel. I'm bringing it to you. You said you're the sovereign God of all the universe. And I just want you to know where I'm at and how I'm feeling and all of it yet. You saw it in Psalm 13. But I will declare your goodness. You've been good so many times. And even if it was hard for me to see right now, what I know you've declared over my life is that I've been given eternity with you. And if you and I don't end up at this place, we end up stuck in a cycle with no resolve to it. We begin to believe that this life is all there is for us. We may not theologically believe that in our hearts and our minds, but we actually live in a way, we grieve in a way that declares that this is all there is. You hear it when someone too young dies. They died 
too young. But if you were to finish that sentence out from a theological perspective, from a doctrinal perspective, they died way too young and they're missing out on so much. Now they must spend all of eternity with the sovereign God of all the universe in perfect harmony and bliss and joy and delight with no pain and no suffering. I can't believe that's what they have to do. You hear how nonsensical it sounds from that perspective. It isn't that the grief and the pain aren't real. It's just that they're temporary. And what you and I have been offered is eternal. Address, express, request, profess. <coughs> Which brings me to the doctrine of the discouraged or the philosophy of the frustrated or the theology of lamenting. Lamenting is actually profoundly theological. It's actually a, an expression of a belief that you hold. Pete, can I get some water? When we lament, we're acknowledging two things. And the first one is this. We're acknowledging that the world is broken. I've been in environments where um, <clears throat> you're encouraged or you're told, nope, don't say you're sick. Ooh. <clears throat> Thank you. He did not say it's correct. Sorry for those watching online. <laughs> ah. Crisp, cool, refreshing. Okay. <clears throat> it's actually really important um, because when you and I pretend that we're actually not sad, that we're not hurting, that we're not broken, we're actually missing a fundamental theological idea. And that is, because sin entered the world, suffering and pain is a part of our experience. I've literally had people say before, listen, don't say out loud that you have a cold. Don't say you have the flu. You just declare that I am healthy, I am well, I am whole, but the day is coming that we will all die of something. It will be a decay of some sort. And most likely will not be in a blaze of glory. It will be in a place of loss and suffering and pain. That's actually a theologically sound idea. Because the world that we currently live in is a world in which sin and brokenness exist. In fact, listen to how it's described in Romans chapter 8, verses 22 and 23. <clears throat> For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. It is appropriate to grieve and to long for what we were actually created for. The second thing that we declare theologically when we lament is this. We declare the reality of a promised restoration of all things 
through our willingness to trust Christ. Right here, in the middle of it, I can say it exactly like it is. I can tell you exactly how I feel. I can make my request known to God. I can tell him what's going on in my life. I can just say it all, and I can say it out loud. I can say it wrong, and it's all right, and God can handle it. And I know I can trust him. I know I can trust him. I know, I know what happened, but I know I can trust him. I know I've lost all my children. My wife has rejected me. Everything in my possessions has been decimated and not at my own folly or failure. Though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. I fundamentally know I was made for more than this moment, that this life is a blink and a breath and it will be gone sooner than I think and that eternity is actually what I was created for and has already been offered and guaranteed to me in Jesus. It's gonna be okay. I don't know how it's going to be okay. I'm not saying it doesn't hurt like mad. I'm just telling you it is. And getting to that place, we actually declare, you're not wrong. In fact, the sin and the brokenness in the world is just an acknowledgement of what the scriptures have already declared. I can tell you how it got here, and I can tell you how it's going to be remedied in the future. It's real, and it exists, and I feel it too, but I also know, and yet, but I will trust in him. faithful. Probably the most popular psalm in the book of Psalms, the Psalms of Lament in particular, is Psalm 22. It's popular for various reasons, but it was popular in the nation of Israel for sure, and it's one of the reasons that I know that Jesus is not even remotely offended when you and I are hurting. When you and I just say exactly how we feel. In fact, when I read the beginning of Psalm 22, you're probably going to recognize it immediately because these words are very famous words. It's put to a particular tune. I don't know what the tune is exactly, but I'm guessing it's an E minor or D minor, like, because those are the sad tunes. But here's what it says, Psalm 22, verse 1, a psalm of David to be sung to the tune of Doe of the Dawn, which is probably one of your all-time favorites, um, Doe of the Dawn. And here's how Psalm 22 begins. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Sound familiar? The moment Jesus is hanging on the cross after much suffering, much pain, much anguish, most of my life I heard this particular passage in the New Testament taught as the moment God turned his back on Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Jesus is doing something very specific in this moment. In fact, several years ago, I discovered it, and I thought I was brilliant until I looked in the footnotes in my Bible, and it said, see Psalm 22. I was like, great, someone else already discovered this. (laughs) And so I went to Psalm 22, and I began to read Psalm 22. And here's what I'm telling you, what Jesus is doing on the cross in this moment when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's doing that thing that we used to do in the locker room when I was playing football or soccer. And it was like, we will, we will. Yeah, everyone in Israel knew the rest of the song. And it's a song of lament. And it follows the exact same progression as the other songs 
of lament. And so here's what Jesus is literally saying in that moment on the cross. This is why he gets you. He gets me. Here's what he's saying on the cross. If you look at Psalm 22, you follow the lament all the way to the end because it's a pathway to some place. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call to you. He's addressing God. And you do not answer. Every night you hear my voice, but I find no relief. Verse 16. My enemies surround me. I'm going to tell you what's going on. Here's my complaint. Like a pack of dogs, an evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. My enemies stare at me and gloat. They divide my garments among themselves and throw dice from my clothing. On the cross, Jesus is saying, this is Psalm 22. This is a fulfillment. This is that moment. God has not abandoned me. I'm just bringing my complaint before him. And here's the request. Oh Lord, do not stay far away. You are my strength. Come quickly to my aid. Save me from the sword. Spare my precious life from these dogs. Snatch me from the lion's jaws and from the horns of these wild oxen. Nevertheless, verse 23, praise the Lord. All you who fear him, honor him, all you descendants of Jacob. Show him reverence, all you descendants of Israel. Listen to this. For he has not. Do you hear it? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he follows the path of lament and he ends up, for he has not ignored or belittled the suffering of the needy. He has not turned his back on them, but he has listened to their cries for help. Verse 31, his righteous acts will be told to those not yet born. They will hear about everything he has done. That's lament. God, I'm looking to you. You're the one I cry out to. You're the one I've been asking for help. You're the one I feel abandoned by. And here's what I'm asking of you, God. And yet, here's what I know. Here's what I know to be true. In the case of Jesus, for thousands of generations, they will hear of the goodness of God because of what I'm experiencing in this moment. They will experience restoration and salvation because of what I'm experiencing in this moment. They will actually believe that they could come to me and I get them. I know what it feels like to be rejected by everyone who loves you. Everyone who said they will never abandon you. And to be hung alone, to be shamed, to be accused, falsely accused, and to be put to death, not for my sin, but for the sin of others. I get it. And Jesus lays out a pathway for you and I to address God, to make our complaint no to him, to express our hearts to him, to make our request before him because he's the one who can do something about it and ultimately to bring us to a place that we can profess. I know I can trust you. This just hurts like mad. This is just really hard. This is really painful, I know. I get it. I've been there. I'm with you. 
You're not alone. This isn't the end of your story. You were made for more than this moment. This life is a blink and a breath. Eternity is what you've been offered. Even if it's not resolved right now, it will be forever. You're going to be okay. And often I find for myself that I end up having to take that journey over and over again. And he's just fine with that. But lamenting is not intended to keep me stuck in a place of grief. Grieving is important. Sadness is real. Loss and pain are inevitable. But it is a divine invitation to take a pathway to trust and hope again. That's what he's inviting you and I to. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to go into a time of worship together. And I'm actually going to invite our prayer ministry teams to go ahead and come up and be available on both sides. And during this time of worship, I know this may stir up things for many of us in this room. And we want our prayer ministry teams to be available during this whole time as we sing these songs together. But if you'd like someone to step into that grieving with you, if you'd like someone to pray with you, they would be honored to join you in that. We're going to have our offering baskets up here during worship and all of that. But I want you to take some time as we sing out these songs of worship and allow the Lord to begin bringing you onto that pathway. So Jesus, we just say we love you. We acknowledge that we live in a world that is broken and you're not afraid of us saying it out loud. We experience things that certainly aren't from you. and We often want to express them in a way that may seem contrary to how you've told us to, but you're just fine with it. We can say it wrong and it's all right. And you're inviting us to a place that we could hear you speak hope. We could hear you speak life. We could hear you speak your declaration over our eternity, even in the middle of our suffering. And I ask that you would do that in these moments. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's worship together. As we were singing, I was thinking about times in the scriptures. In fact, in David's relationship with Saul, Saul's dealing with demonic issues. And when David would play music before the king, he would have relief. It was momentary for Saul because he didn't take it any further than that. But there's something powerful about melodies that matter. Here's what I want to say to you. Some of you came into this room today and you've been sticking a needle in your arm, snorting stuff, smoking stuff. Like You came to this room and you thought, man, I just can't declare God's goodness. I can't say I trust God because you don't know what I've been like, Pastor. Welcome to everybody else in the room. Because the reality is that any type of life that is the independent life that's me pulling myself up by my own bootstraps, my own righteousness, which technically is self-righteousness. It's all the same. And this process of declaring where I am, how I'm feeling, making my requests known to God, and then expressing trust. You could start today at expressing trust. Because God already knows it. Like you think to yourself, if everyone in this room knew what I had done yesterday or knew where I had been this week, like everyone in this room would reject me. No, everyone in this room who understands who we are fundamentally would say me too. 
I don't care what your addiction is. Maybe mine's just my own addiction to my own ego. Maybe it's my own addiction to solving my own problems. The truth is, there's an invitation extended to you. And Amy would love to tell you, you're not worthy to tell Jesus how good he is. You're not worthy to tell God how great he is. You gotta clean yourself up some before you do that. And it's actually the exact opposite. Right here, right now. Many of David's psalms of lament are because of his own failures. God, here's how I feel. Here's what I did. Here's what I'm asking of you. Here's what I believe about you. And there is power in declaring the goodness of God that can lead you to freedom from everything else. And he's inviting you into that. He's inviting me into that. Fresh, new, again, today. Prayer ministry teams are going to be available on both sides here. Um, uh, if you have any prayer needs, they would love to join with you. Also, um, our small groups, life groups, they're all launching this week. Some of them have already launched. Um, the, the reality is, if everyone here jumped into a small group or a life group, they're all going to be full. And so what I'm telling you is, if you can't find one that fits you or your demographic or your group, then tell us that you're going to start one. And we'll invite people to join yours or find a host home. But the reality is we need to be in relationship with one another. We need to be connected with one another. We need to be known by one another. And so we're encouraging you, get involved in community. This week, we're kicking all that off in all kinds of environments. The table's out there, the brochure's out there. It's on the app and every place else. I think that was everything I was supposed to announce. I feel like I nailed it that time. Last service, I had to ask people what I was supposed to announce. So yeah. Hey. Church on the Rock, we love you. God is with you. He is for you. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play.